I'm Anna Webb. Welcome to A Dog's Life. Hey, Mr. Binks, you know on our podcast we've talked to a lot of organisations that train dogs to help humans. Well, today we're jumping on Zoom to speak to Jackie Law, who set up a not-for-profit organisation called Dogs for Wildlife. And she and her team train dogs to go out to Africa and protect endangered species from poachers. Jackie Law, welcome to A Dog's Life. Thank you and thank you for inviting me, Anna. No, honestly, this is so cool. I'm really excited because I've seen on the telly all about anti-poaching dogs working in Africa, probably in India as well, to um, help endangered species and keep nasty villains, i.e. the poachers, away. So it's brilliant because you train these dogs, do you? Yes, we've uh, we've been fortunate. We filmed with the BBC with um, Moe who is a, a Mire, they followed her progress in this country up until she was a year old. And then once she was deployed, we went over and filmed with them when she was about 18 months old on the one show. And we also did um, some filming with Dr. Scott on this morning with um, another one of our dogs at Folly Farm and showing how we um, get them used to the sights and the smells of the animals in this country and everything. So yes, it's, it, we do train them it's uh, an ongoing process and it's a very important process to help try and protect some of the endangered species yeah totally so your organization um, is dogs for wildlife what made you go in this direction what was the inspiration behind channeling a dog's great ability its nose its ability to know where villains are and scent them out yeah what made you do it um, about seven years ago, we have a dog training company, um, which we've been running for about 11 years now. So we, we do train a lot of police dogs, security dogs. Um, we work a lot with German Shepherds, Malinois, Dutch Shepherds. Um, and about seven years ago, um, we decided to donate one of our pups to a, another not-for-profit. And from that, that turned into seven dogs going over to help with the fight against poaching. Um, Initially, the puppy was being donated. Um, They took him and we had him back after a week. I don't think they realized how much work a Malamar puppy is. (laughs) And we trained him up until he was uh, 14 months old before he was deployed. Um, And actually him and two of his brothers um, went over to Africa. We also had, um, because we breed our own dogs in house. So we selectively pick the right dogs for the right environment. So we also sent over, um, Leo and Knox went over as well, two Dutch Shepherds, Freddie, my Malinois, who was three years old. That was quite heart-wrenching, but it is for the greater good. He was my baby boy, but he is fighting the good fight now. Um, And from that, um, we got approached by a couple of people uh, who were teaching in Zimbabwe. They are lovely people, Brendan and Shana. And they actually raised the money with a sponsored walk to um, deploy Merwi over to Amire, which is in Zimbabwe. Um, and we raised and trained her here um, until she was 14 months old. 
and she was deployed over there. And it was just a natural progression. And from us sending Merwi over, we thought, you know what? We should start this up ourselves. We'll, we'll devise our own not-for-profit. We'll get it up and running. Um, Riley, actually, who is one of the Travis family, uh, Amire, is one of the directors. We have Jack Radage, who is a zookeeper at Folly Farm, um, myself, and Darren Priddle, who is my partner. Um, and um, he's another director of Dogs for Wildlife. Wow. So it's really a passion and highlighting the skills, really, I guess, that you've got for training pretty specialist dogs, aren't they, really? You know, the Mellon one, the Dutch Shepherd, particularly. I'm in awe, quite honestly. <laughs> <laughs> they are hard work, but they are so good at their jobs. They Dogs need a job and tuning into whatever breed of dog it is to bring the best out of that dog is so rewarding. And to see that the dogs can actually fit a purpose that's not only fulfilling their need, but it's also protecting people and other animals. It, it, I can't put into words how proud we are of our dogs. I bet. No, absolutely. So say with Maui and, and Freddie, who's obviously relatively old to, to go out to Africa, how did you get them used to the massive difference in the, you know, the not the scenery, that's the wrong word, but in the environment? Did you take them to places so they'd see a rhino before they actually encountered one? Yeah, we're, we're lucky. We're, we're linked with a few zoos now, but initially... Um, we worked with Folly Farm, which is a local zoo to us. Um, I knew the curator of uh, Folly Farm. I, I teach a few hours in a local college, and that's how I'd met Tim. And I approached him and sort of said, look, we want to get these dogs used to the sights, the sounds. They've got lions. They've got rhino. They've got a lot of African species there. And they allow us access before the public get there. Um, so we can take them behind the scenes, we can take them into the enclosures, they can smell the animals, they can see the animals. And we start this from around about 10 weeks old, once they've had their second vaccinations. And so they're not that phased by anything that they're likely to encounter over there. You know, there are a lot of free roaming animals over there, things jump out. So the no nearest thing I've got to that is I live in Wales, so we're full of sheep. Um, I, you know, I can go into lots of field where there's animals running around. There's lots of other things going on. So we try our very best to throw as much at them as we can to desensitize them to most things. No, that's brilliant. I guess you have to really. Um, I could just sort of imagine my bull terrier prudence when you face to face with something like a rhino. Gosh, you know, doesn't really bear thinking about. She'd run, I think. She would run. She's um, not that stupid, which is not stupid at all, in fact. We do a lot of engagement training with them as young puppies. So just teaching them the value of us and looking at us. So we literally take that into every enclosure. We will do food engagement and just teach them that there's a rhino there. Hey, guess what? Something small rewarding. So they're just desensitized to it all. That exactly. it doesn't mean anything to them. And you weren't at all worried going into an enclosure with a lion? No. I it's like great. It's like that's my fantasy as a child growing up. I grew up by Whipsnade Zoo. I was obsessed with animals. So <laughs> no, it's perfect. It's just you know, it's awe-inspiring, you know, and the one thing at Folly Farm as well, there is 
it is up close and personal because it's just a thick pane of glass. So those lions will be scratching at the glass when I'm sitting there doing food work or whatever we're doing and the dogs are just looking at them. The first couple of times they're like, oh, wow, what is this? But in fairness, most of them haven't really been phased by it. And, you know, if they have it, they have a really quick recovery time because I'm not phased by it or Darren's not phased by it. They're not phased by it. And of course, you know, with a huge sense of smell, you know, they'd smell through the pane of glass, obviously, yeah. no problem. And I think, you know, it's natural, isn't it? I think for animals to distinguish a massive predator like a lion from their yeah. pheromones and think, OK, maybe we offer a bit of respect around this this yeah. creature. You know, he's bigger than me. And, but it's it's fascinating. And I, I'm, I love I love this idea. And then in terms of, I suppose, the other aspect of the training would you say that is more like traditional police work, bringing down a villain? That's towards the end of the training. Predominantly, we focus on the tracking and the right. reward at the end of the track to start off with would either be um, a ball or then we integrate it into the person with the ball and then re- rewarding them. And then we start developing the bite work and things. Once we're a little bit more mature, we'll do foundational bite work and playing tug and teaching them out and and the level of control because for us even though they're going where they're going the level of control that the handlers need to have on them and they'd only deploy them at the very last moment if they had to to be fair most of the times the poachers know if there is a dog present they tend to give up the fight because they don't want to take on the dog Right. Yeah. I mean, isn't it the worry that these people have got guns on them? Most of the time that the dogs are deployed at night right? right, or after the event. So dogs are taken to the scene of a crime so they can track where the poachers have been or they will be looking for the cache of weapons that they might have left there. Um, it, it's normally at night. Dogs can track at a very fast pace. And it would be very, very hard for the poachers. It'd have to be a pretty strong, good shot to a dog moving in the dark, in and out. They don't walk just in a straight line. They're air scenting, their noses are down. You know, it's, we haven't heard of any incident of a dog being shot while tracking a poacher or apprehending a poacher. No, and of course, dogs can see in the dark and humans can't very well, not not as well. So this is what makes them so good at what, you know, the trackers in Africa are amazing people. The the way they track spore just blows me away. Yeah. How do you ensure then, Jackie, once the dogs are out there, say in Zimbabwe, that the handlers are as good as you? What um, Darren does is when they go over, he goes over with the dog they have a four to six week bedding in period to acclimatize to the temperature, to acclimatize to all the changes. I call it the Bible. Darren writes out a step-by-step process on transferring the relationship that we have with them to the new rangers. He works with the new rangers, teaching them all the commands, all the skills. He goes back out after a four to six month period to see where they're at. You know, that it sounds crazy, but there's also um, he sets up a WhatsApp group with them as well. So if there are any questions, they just message us. Darren can sort out any areas that they might be struggling with. And we're so proud of how quickly the Rangers have 
built that bond with the dogs and it's a natural progression. And the dogs, in fairness, are pretty good at training them as well because they know what they're doing. So it, it's the rangers learn pretty quickly to identify when a dog knocks onto a scent and things like that. So, so it's an ongoing process. And, you know, once the dog's hand out, is handed over that's not it we go over every year we'll go over whenever we need to to work with the rangers to make sure that they're utilizing the dog to the best of its ability yeah well certainly on the the clip on telly i saw it was really heartwarming i could see that these rangers perhaps hadn't once been that natural around dogs but they were just so in tune with the dog and smiling and and you know and you see that the dog is giving all the benefits that all dogs do around humans you know keeping them less stressed and smiling and and there was a pride in in their job that you could see oozing out you know it's it's so it's so rewarding to watch because it's natural it it, the the rangers over there don't have all the day-to-day stuff that we have boggling our heads and you know they have one job and it's the relationship with the dog and using the dog and they don't get clouded by everything else it's just amazing to watch yeah, and the passion and, of course, you know, the, the the importance of these dogs. That's, well, you know, why I'm so enjoying this conversation because, you know, it shows the adaptability of dogs. You know, yes, they can be army dogs, sniffer dogs. You know, remember the dog that went in after the Paris bombings? Um, yeah. I think he was called Diesel, I think. And there was this massive outpouring of grief for mm-hmm. the dog that went in with the, the French, oh, whatever they're called, top police force. And, you know, he took the... the, the bullets basically didn't he you know he was wearing a bulletproof vest but it wasn't enough and and there was this outpouring of grief for sure it was diesel he was a malinois do do you remember that yeah i i do remember that now you're saying that yeah it's 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 the same it's dogs will lay their lives down for you and it's no other species of animal would give to us what dogs give to us No, I know. And somebody asked me, do you think Diesel knew what was going on? And I said, you know, even if that, um, you know, police officer was as steeled as steeled, that dog would have smelt cortisol fear. Because I think in that situation, you're only human, right? Even if you're really good at controlling your nerves. And that dog did it for its handler. But that's what dogs do, isn't it? And, And in this poaching situation, if it got out of hand, maybe with some of these poachers, you'd be sure that the dog would be the first to protect his team. The dog will know intent before the handler knows intent because, as you said, that poacher will be giving off a vibe and the dog will pick up on that, even if they have no weapons on them, even if it was just a random person just stood in the middle of a conservancy. The dog would know the intent. The heart rate would be increased. He would be giving off pheromones and the dog would indicate to the rangers that there was a problem. Yeah, And, yeah. and again... That in itself can be enough of a deterrent because if that person then leaves the conservancy, he will talk to all the other villagers, all the other places that about the dog that is now, we'll use Amire, for example. Everywhere around Amire knows that Moe's there. Right, Moe yeah. is also, has been taken to um, local villages when there's been a crime and been used to track. So they're also using her to create 
a relationship with the local villagers so that there is a mutual respect. And again, that's another thing we do with Dogs for Wildlife. Yes, the anti-poaching dogs or the tracker dogs that we use, but we also work with rural communities around the conservancies to help empower those communities so they don't need to feel that they have to poach. We give them another way of doing things. Like Amire has set them up with beehives and things like that, so they have another source of income. There's lots. It's so complex, the poaching problem, but that there's lots of other little things going on behind the scenes as well that we try and help with. We, we um, just run a spay and vaccination project with Amire, and we had over a thousand dogs vaccinated against rabies because those dogs can take rabies on to Amire. Um, we helped neuter, I think it was 400 dogs around the local communities because their welfare is compromised because they're overbred. They, they don't understand over there. Dogs aren't viewed the same. No, so, no, so there's no. a lot of other things that we, we try and help those communities with as well. So is Amire the name of the nature reserve? or That's is one that... of them, yeah. Riley is one of the directors with us as well. Um, they had a massacre in 2007 where a group of poachers came in with AK-47 and completely obliterated all the rhinos, oh. bar one, bar one. This little um, rhino calf was left. Actually, there's, if you go on YouTube, there's a programme called uh, A Rhino in My House that Judy made. And it's all about her raising this one rhino in her home because obviously he'd lost his mother. He's now a formidable beast. And how they've brought back the black and white breeding program to Amire because they'd lost everything. Gosh. But now it's, it's doing really, really well. Though. That's amazing. I mean, what would you say the statistics of the success of your dogs, um, you know, in terms of helping rhinos stay there? You know, I mean, for example, at Amire, have they seen that since the dogs have been involved, there's been less poaching? Yes, they, they have a lot less um, invasions, not invasions, but incursions of people coming in because it's not just rhino. It's bushmeat. It's fish. It's laying snares. There's a lot of things that are killing all the wildlife. It's like pangolin, the most poached creature on the planet, you know. Um, but every one of those animals has a place in the ecosystem. So if you get rid of one of those species, it impacts everything. With Merwe, we'd say it's about a, a 50 to 60% um, decrease in um, incidents across Amire. It's very hard to get true statistics from a lot of the places because the mere fact the dog's there decreases it. But also a lot of places that have, will use rhino, rhino don't actually publicize the fact that there's rhino on their conservancies. So even when you get a lot of the statistics on how many rhino have been poached, they're only from the big game reserves. That doesn't necessarily include all the private little reserves that don't actually publicize the fact they've got rhino. So the figures are, unfortunately, a lot higher, I think. What's actually, um, I, I, as I've said, when we went out there two years ago, we got there the day after a rhino, he'd been shot. The poachers didn't even realize they'd shot him because they'd killed one and the bullet had gone straight through him into the other one. So, yeah, it's pretty horrific. Um, you know, um, another one of our dogs, Bane, is now at that conservancy. And um, 
he's he's doing a great job that they've he'll indicate if so they walk they patrol the, the the fence lines so they will indicate if there are fresh footsteps coming into the conservancy and track off so they're finding more snares they're finding a lot more things by the mere fact that bane is there that's amazing and and where's that game reserve that's in south africa that's right. in limpopo yeah. right okay oh gosh that's amazing so they they sent the air of the footsteps yeah. um so find footsteps in a load of bush i should imagine i mean it's not going to be like obvious is it no. to the human yeah. eye and then yes because snares i hadn't thought of that snares are horrific we went snare collecting when we went over there and literally if you had a five meter area if there's one snare you can guarantee there's 35 they literally and you can't even see them. They're so well hidden. And it, it, they don't care what they snare. It's whatever poor creature walks past. And it is a very, very horrific death. Oh. So the fact that the dogs can indicate that there's footsteps, that someone's been in there, that they find the snares is a huge win-win for us. Yeah, gosh, you can really see their value, can't you? You know, but what, how do you ensure though, Jackie? Because out in Africa, I mean, what, gosh, I mean, it doesn't bear thinking about, but if a dog got accidentally caught in a snare, maybe being a bit over enthusiastic, I mean, how would you train a dog not to get to, not to think it's a toy or, hey, look, guys, I've got the snare and try and pick it up or something? We teach them to indicate on metal, right? But also, what you've got to remember as well is, the human scent that's actually on the snare would be also an indication to the dog. So the dog is just going to indicate that it's found something. But the rangers are with the dog. The dog's not going to get it into the snare. The dog isn't off on its own. No. So, you know, they, they um, and a lot, we've had a lot of tactical um, harnesses supplied to the dog. So they're stab proof, bulletproof, and they're lightweight. So all of our dogs, going out there now uh, we send that kit out with the dog um, all the rangers are going to be trained on first aid we go over um, we get a lot of stuff donated to us so we fund all of the stuff that they're going to need ongoing to each conservancy gosh that must take a lot of fundraising really because yeah. this is not for profit this is your passion yeah yeah we, we um, we've got a lovely lady at the moment. Um, the new recruit that will be on the website soon. So this is an exclusive. <laughs> we have a new puppy called Dan. At the moment, he's 10 weeks old. Um, we bred him here. Um, he's fourth generation, actually, of our working dogs. We selected him out of the litter for this purpose. Um, and his name is Daniel or Dan um, because a lady is fundraising for us um, she's raised the total amount for him, which is about $10,000. Um, her son, unfortunately, lost his battle against bone cancer when he was 18 years old. Um, and she wanted to do something in his memory. And he, one of the things that towards the end of his life, um, he was with his dog and that dog gave so much to him um, that she wanted to, in his honour, and because of his passion for dogs and for animals, fundraise and name this dog Dan. So we're going to place him in a conservancy. So Caroline is, and in fairness, she's continued fundraising for us. 
She's a fantastic lady who is amazing at fundraising. She's working for us. We've been funded by a raw dog food company for another one of the dogs that is going over to Amire, actually, Shinga. Um, Wow. So we, 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 you know, uh, we fundraise a lot of it ourselves. Um, (laughs) But it's our passion. There's nothing better in life than being able to do something that you know is going to make a difference. And I think, well, it's so important at the moment, you know, I mean, the planet is in a, a crisis. So I was only watching Attenborough the other night, you know, I'm highlighting how many species, you know, just facing extinction or are gone and 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 as you said earlier it's about the well it's like Yellowstone Park isn't it they reintroduced wolves they hadn't been in Yellowstone for over a hundred years because they've been demonized on uh, unrightly I would say wolves I think are amazing amazing Uh, oh god you know if we lived like wolves there would be no problems with that you know they're so ordered and anyway introduce them and then Yellowstone Park's thriving again for for the time being considering the whole circumstances of the planet (laughs) what you're doing basically is is so amazing I'm finding this so interesting but you mentioned raw there for a minute being sponsored by raw food firm Jackie does that mean you're you're a raw food feeder yourself I I feed raw I find that it um some of our dogs that are trained for the police we have to feed the same food that they're going to be fed as operational working dogs with the police. Um, But I do see the difference between those dogs and my own personal dogs and our operational dogs that are fed raw. You know, all the dogs that go over to Africa are going to be on a raw diet when they're over there. They don't have kibble in Africa. Well, they might have kibble in Africa, but it's not going to be the same sort of stuff that's in in these countries but predominantly it's raw and they will make the food to suit the dog so they'll add veg they'll you know they'll use warthog or whatever meat is available Um, and it's really important to me to make sure that my dogs have a well-balanced and species specific diet that gives them optimum health yes I'm I'm big on that yeah no it's very interesting you've noticed a difference in the dogs being fed you know raw or kibble I mean would you say in their trainability is that different or is it just in their Their concentration right their energy levels their coat condition Uh, kibble fed dogs I find have a drier harsher coat does that make sense it's yeah yeah it, it doesn't feel the same and even they smell different. I know that sounds crazy, but they smell different. I, I can see I get more problems. I don't get problems with anal glands with my raw fed dogs. I do with kibble fed dogs. Mm, mm, and even the volume of poo, to be fair. It's oh. a lot easier with a, a raw fed dog that goes once a day or twice sometimes to a kibble fed dog that goes five or six times a day. Yes, no, it is supposed to really, yes, um, make your carbon poor print smaller on raw because, you know, there's hardly anything to pick up. But it's true. No, it's really interesting that you see a difference so, with their concentration because I've seen that definitely as well. So that's all a bit of food for thought for people there. But on other aspects of health, you know, is it a, a worry for you with the dogs out in Africa in terms of 
you know, strange diseases that are there um, and not in England, for example, insects that could bite and kill them. Obviously, snakes are out there. I mean, how do you prep the, the guys mm-hmm. out in Africa for maximum health, you know, in terms of getting cuts and grazes, straining muscles, you know, falling down a ditch accidentally, maybe, you know, all of these things with the rough terrain as well? We um, will cover a lot of first aid with them, but I will also show them some of the stuff that I'm now using because, like, I'll use the red light therapy. I um, use a Photozo um, red light therapy on my dogs, especially the operational dogs that are going to go over there to relax muscles. Um, dogs get scratches. Dogs get cuts when they're going through bush just teaching them how to clean it up and that they can use the right uh, the red light therapy to help with the healing process just making sure that they understand that you know you warm a dog up before you exercise it and you warm it back down afterwards so by using the red light after they've done a long track will help that dog's relax down a lot quicker and the recovery time will be a lot quicker so it's just them understanding when to use it um how to use it um, and I am um, we're quite fortunate that Photozo have also um, offered us that each conservancy that we put a dog into they will supply them for free one of their pieces of equipment so I can go over train them how to use it when to use it and to be fair I'm also hoping that if any animals are found injured on the conservancies, they can use them on them, especially if they catch them soon enough with a snare, because they can help with the healing process of the damage that the tightness of the snare causes. So mm-hmm. I think that's going to be really beneficial. Yeah. And, and um, it's, it's all about them understanding to get the best out of their dog, they have to give the best welfare to their dog. Yes, absolutely. And, and they're well aware that this dog is a big investment and, of yeah. course, you know, great asset, um, the biggest asset they've got. So it's in everyone's interest to keep them, you know, in tip top um, condition. But it's interesting you said there about the red light helping de-stress, if you like, after a training session, because mm-hmm. I would imagine for a dog like, say, Maui, you, you, they get hyped up, don't they? And if they're on a scent, they've got their adrenaline coursing. You know, this is it for them. Oh, this she's gone, yeah. She'll go and go and go. Yeah, Yeah, their drive kicks in like, you know, we can't imagine. So would you be using that as well to sort of, you know, detox her afterwards? Yeah, I think that's really important that once she's achieved her goal, say she's at, whether it's a training scenario or a real life scenario, that they detox her once it's finished. They wind her down gradually and, you know, give her, the rest and the relaxation so in five six hours time if they wanted to get her back out she's back in tip-top condition and ready to go again so you know a lot of the toxins are out of the muscles as well I guess Mm because you know um we I ran one 10k once it nearly killed me but um you know afterwards you know you do feel that you God, everything's still stuck in your muscles. <laughs> yeah, I've used the Fotizo, I've got to admit, I um, absolutely love it. I've been using it for seven years now. Um, and they're based in South Africa. That's where they're actually manufactured, which is handy. Yeah, yeah, because uh, um, when I, I spoke to them, they, they I realised they were in South Africa. And obviously, Bain is in South Africa. We're also deploying a Springer Spaniel this year to Manqui 
in South Africa and she's going to be a bushmeat detection dog. So Indy will be doing a lot of work, but it'll be really beneficial to her for helping her come down after all of that work and relax down again. So the next day when they get her out for work, you know, there's not going to be a buildup of toxins, you know, lactic acid problems. She will be fully recovered after each um, working session. Yeah, but it's great as well for insect bites, again, to take all the inflammation down and um, cut pores. But also just, you know, I love using it on acupressure points and keeping a dog's back end, you know, the hamstrings, you know, in, in good good nick as well, really. Well, I, I do actually use it on, I, I call her the godmother, um, who is uh, my 10-year-old Dutch Shepherd Indy. Now, she produced three anti poaching dogs and over 25 operational police dogs so i think she deserves the best of everything at the moment so yeah she gets her nightly session of a little bit of a massage and a little bit of red light therapy and yeah she she's uh, living her extra life now so she's a bit of a guinea pig for me as well so i'm practicing all my different little points on her yeah so, uh, Oh, that sounds splendid. Brilliant. Oh, well, look, Jackie, where can people reach out to you? What's your website? And, you know, what would you like listeners to do to help you? If, if they could just share the word, um, we could be found at www.dogsforwildlife.org. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, share our posts, just raise engagement for us just so we can get the word out there and just help more and more and more reserves. You know, we, the reserves don't pay for the dogs. We fund it all. So the more we can raise, the more dogs we can get over there and try and just preserve some of these endangered animals that need us to protect them. Oh, definitely. Oh, Jackie, well, um, if you've got our support, definitely. Um, I'd love to come and visit one day. Oh, you're welcome. See you train. Thank you. No, that's great. Well, Jackie, thank you so much. And I hope you'd like to come on, you know, when there's more breaking news. And thanks for sharing that scoop about Dan. That's amazing. But we'd love to monitor Dan Daniel's progress. Oh, we will be putting pictures of him on in there. I don't know if you can hear a dog barking in the back. Yeah, yeah, that don't worry. Be, yeah, yeah, that would be him outside in the compound watching everybody else. Um, you're more than welcome. Um, and there will be um, updates on him. I think it's this week that it's going on uh, Facebook and our Instagram about him and Caroline's story and what an amazing woman she is and what she's doing for us. Well, it's amazing. Um, thank you again, Jackie. And um, I'm really favorite, looking Anna. forward to monitoring Dan's progress. <laughs> thank you for having me on. Well, Mr. Binks, that's our show. What did you think? Yes, those are very brave dogs that are trained. They're Malinois and Dutch Shepherds, much bigger than you, Mr. Binks. Was that? Yes, you're right, it is time for Woof of the Week. We know how much dogs can help humans, but it's so wonderful that dogs can also help save the planet and many endangered species. And I hope you all enjoyed it. If you did, why don't you rate and review the show wherever you listen to your podcasts. Thanks also to Jackie Law and Dogs for Wildlife, and all the information about them will be in the show notes. Thanks, of course, to Mike Hansen, my producer, and you can find out more about him at Pod People UK. And for me, 
I'm at Anna Webb Dogs. For anybody interested to find out a little bit more about Fotizo Vet Care that Jackie Law mentioned in the podcast, why not go to daintreehealth.com and we have a special voucher code where £25 of every sale goes to Dogs for Wildlife. Simply put in Dogs for Wildlife 25. What's that, Mr. Binks? Yes, we will be back in your feed next Sunday. So why don't you subscribe now and you'll never miss another show.